Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Take two. It's Ken Dashow's okay. Beatle Revolution. One, two, three, four. <laughs> iHeartRadio. Beatles Revolution number 69, which is perfect because that's the theme of this podcast, 1969. A country, a world in turmoil, and all the amazing things that happened that year, from man landing on the moon, to Woodstock, to Abbey Road coming out, to the all-time underdog New York Mets winning the World Series and uniting different people left, right. It didn't matter if you loved or hated Nixon, landing on the moon, and the Beatles, and the Miracle Mets winning it all. And my guest on this episode of Beatles Revolution, not just the right fielder on that championship Met team and a childhood hero of mine, but a man who's also a New York Times bestselling author with his latest book, After the Miracle, joined me for Ken Dasho's Beatles Revolution. It's Art Shamsky. It's great to be here. You know, you when you said uh, childhood hero, you just made me feel older than I really want to feel. No, the worst, I got an, a letter from someone who said, Ken, I really love you. You've taught me so much about music. I've been listening to you since I was a little, comma, little, comma, little boy. And I thought... Screw you. You didn't need the third one. You well, could have just said high school or something. You, know, you didn't I, need to twist it. What's, what's interesting now, Ken, is I, I tell people that come up to me and say, you know, I, I remember I remember, I wasn't even born, et cetera, et cetera. I remember the Mets, et cetera, et cetera. And I just say, you know, I was only 12 years old playing on that team back then. And, and they say, really? I just go along <laughs> with it. I just, you know, if they challenge me, then I got to tell the truth. And it's easy to find out, obviously, with baseball cards and Winnipegia, whatever you call it, and uh, but uh, uh, you know, I do feel a little bit older now. But the reality of it is, uh, listening to people like yourself talk and, and talk about those memories it makes me feel young at heart. That's what it really is all about. I got to interview Howie Rose last year, who is the broadcaster, the voice of the Mets on radio, and has been a New York legend of of New York sports. Uh, the Rangers, Mateau, 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 one of the famous calls in, in all of New York sports. And I said, I said, I'm here with the legendary Howie Rose. And he said, the legendary Ken Dashow said, Christ, we're all the, and Howie said, legend is okay. Legend means that you've accomplished something that a lot of people appreciate. What you have to watch out for is venerable. Venerable yeah. means you have one foot in the ground. And he has a point. Yeah, you know, what's interesting for me, Ken, is that, you know, I, I played 13 years and really, this is the honest to God truth, and I, I played for some really good teams. Nobody ever talks about the other 12. Isn't that something? It's really about 1969, and, and I've come to understand uh, the importance of that team and what we meant to the history of New York City and to the country. And, and, and talking to somebody like yourself who, who knows history and, and knows about music of that time and knows about things that were going on, it, it makes me feel proud to have been part of that team, and, and I deal with it, and I understand it, but the, the reality of it is that all of us who are part of that 1969 team, our names, uh, for whatever it's worth, will live on forever because we were part of that incredible year and that incredible team, and 
And uh, for me, I'm very happy to have been part of it because I get a chance to be with people like yourself and talk about those things that were really important. And, and I'm still in New York because of it. It was such an uh, unbelievable year for, for me as a, on, as a, on a personal level. But now with this 50th anniversary coming up, um, this whole year is actually the 50th anniversary. But for me, being part of that team was very, very special. Art had written a book years ago about the teams that won in 69, about how we had this remarkable moment in New York of the Mets, the Knicks, and the Jets all winning at the same time. And for me, as a sports fan growing up in Brooklyn, being, uh, what, 11 years old, it's the, it's the pinnacle of the world to you when your heroes win like that. The new book here, which is called After the Miracle, but the reason it's on the New York Times bestseller list, The Heart that is in this book is absolutely beautiful. It is so beautifully done because it's not, there are funny baseball stories in this. I assure you there's plenty of hysterical, funny baseball stuff like you expect from a baseball book. But what really comes through here and after the miracle is how tight knit a group you were, how you bonded. And yet in the light of what was going on in 1969, here's Ron Swoboda, a liberal from Maryland and Cal Kuntz and Jerry Grody, right wing guys from the South, the Vietnam War, the draft, Nixon, women's rights. There's so much on the table. And yet the portrait you paint in this book is that you really were a family. Hippies and get your hair cut, join the movement, crew cuts, you know, just the Super Bowl, 69. It wasn't just the Colts and the Jets. It was Johnny Unitas with the crew cut and Joe Namath with long hair and a fur coat. And the Baltimore Orioles, who were the best team around, best pitching, five 20-game winners and the best hitters. And here's Art Chamsky with long sideburns. And, you know, it was more of a New York vibe of people feeling uh, Ken Boswell had long sideburns. Well, we all did. You know, yeah. it was, uh, that was the Beatles. We, were, we loved them. We, we, we wanted to, to emulate them. And, did you? Uh, yeah. You know, God, wouldn't you want to be uh, one of the Beatles? I mean, come on. I mean, and if you talk to them, they'd probably be want to be one of the 1969 Mets. You know, it's, uh, it's the way of the world. But it was the times and, 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 and you know, looking like, uh, you know, like uh, John Lennon or looking like uh, any of those guys was, was very in at the time, but but uh, we all had uh, the long sideburns. I remember one meeting we had, and we weren't playing very well. This was 1968 before we won in 1969, and Gil Hodges, our great manager, he didn't have these many meetings. He was uh, he was uh, he was pretty uh, uh, stern in his actions, but didn't wasn't a big meeting guy. And he we weren't doing very well at the time. And he has his meetings. And he says, you know, these guys, you guys, they're not running the bases well. You're not hitting the ball well. You're not pitching great. You know. And, and all these things, and he said, and he looked at us, this whole row of guys with the long sideburns, and he says, not only that, those sideburns look like, you know what? And so we said, oh, okay, let's trim them up a little bit. And after that, he never said another word. But, but it was the it was the way you felt back in then. In the world, like you said, it was upside down now for a lot of reasons. But back then, it was so in, in such turmoil. The war in Vietnam, of course, was tearing the country up, and and uh, it was a time when assassinations and 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 all sorts of bad things happening and these three teams in New York uh, who all won for the first time nobody had ever won before really kind of made people feel better about their lives particularly in this area and the Mets I think of the three were the most most well known in terms of of, of being the lovable losers and and having that that tag on them of, of being awful team for so many years 
Uh, I think we made people feel better about their lives in a, in a brief period of time, and they've passed that legacy and that, that information on to their children, and their children have passed it on to their children. And that's why I get kids who weren't even born coming up to me and saying, hey, my parents or my grandparents told us that you guys really made them feel better about their lives at a time when they were really down. And I think that has been the legacy of that team, uh, the fact that we were so bad for so many years and what was going on in the world at the time. And then the cast of characters who made up that team, I mean, from uh, our manager, Gil Hodges, to one of the best pitchers in the history of the game and Tom Seaver, and then, of course, the characters like Tug McGraw and, and Don Clendenin and Jerry Kuzman and on and on with the guys who were on that team. But uh, it was just a, a wonderful time for all of us to to. to to make people feel better about their lives, and I think that's really the great thing that I think I think about all the time. Four things happened that year, 1969, that shook the world. And before we even get into the amazing movies that happened and the books that came out, to me, the four events that held this nation together as it was pulling apart, July 20th, Neil Armstrong walks on the moon. And it didn't matter if you were a Semper Fi or a long-haired hippie with an earring in your ear. Neil Armstrong walked on the damn moon. You know, what's interesting about that particular thing is, Ken, we were in Montreal, and we we were supposed to be on a plane, and the plane had engine trouble. And this was what the kind of year we had. Uh, so many great things happened to us as a team. I mean, we can go on and on with the black cat walking on the field. Oh, we're going to cover uh, that. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, we're in Montreal, and the plane has engine trouble, so now we can't leave, so we have to stay at the airport. And we're all in this lounge watching this uh, a possible walk on the moon. Nobody really knew it was going to happen for sure. Right. And and it was a fate of an engine problem in a plane that brought us all together. And that was the kind of year it was for us to see that and be part of just a viewing audience of being such a proud American for that to happen and, and then going on to winning the World Series. But for us, to, the, the, just the fate of that that problem with the engine created this this um, this um, a time of real bonding yeah yeah, time, yeah we sat there and in, in, in awe so proud to be you know with such a bad thing going on with the war in vietnam but now it's such a good thing that brought this country together it was such a memorable moment for all of us and part of a fantastic year in 69 but uh, i know you've got three other things but that was just a moment in montreal for all of us yeah. On that '69 Met team, it didn't matter there. if you loved or hated Nixon. Neil Armstrong was standing. Oh, on the it was. Moon. It was. It was. I mean, you, we could have. I think all of us felt this emotion that we were, we were Americans. And there was yeah. no. There was no war yeah. going on at that, that moment, moment. That one moment. That yeah. night. Yeah. Yeah. And because John Kennedy had said we're going to have somebody on the moon, I forget what year it was, but yeah. I remembered '62 uh, was yeah, it. Right? Yeah. It said that we're going to have somebody before the end of this decade. Yeah. He said we're going to have somebody walking on the moon, and you know, we 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 kind of paid attention to it, but we didn't know if it was going to happen. And all of a sudden, we're there, and we see it. And now uh, we we weren't ball players at the moment. We were Americans. We were we were a team, but we were we felt a, uh, a kind of a pride that you. You don't feel that often, and it just was uh, It was for all of us that were there. It was just a great moment. All right, I'm going to give you the next moment to talk about. August 15th through the 18th, there's a little music festival happening up in Bethel Woods called the Woodstock Music and Art Fair. Well, I wish I would have been there. Really? Yeah. Would you have gone? <laughs> oh, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, my, I know myself and Swoboda for sure would have gone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's great to know. Yeah. So uh, what were you listening to back then? I mean, which is weird because the clubhouse is a very sort of common, you know, it's hard to put on 
uh, Alvin Lee's going home, you can't really put on Santana's jam if you got some people who just want to hear country and western music, which was always the southern ball player thing. But what were you remember? What was the music outside of the Beatles? Were you listening to all, Jefferson Airplane? Were you listening to all that? I was always. And back then, we didn't have guys playing the big boom boxes in the locker room. Of course. Room. No, it was more guys would you'd have a little radio or something or some sort of music vibe that you could get in your own little locker area. And and I think we were all into our own kind of different music. But I was very much into the the, the music of the times. And uh, you know, I was your typical uh, guy that was grew up with uh, rock and roll. I grew up in St. Louis, which was uh, at the time, you know, a lot of rock and roll greats came out of that area. So Chuck I, Berry, yeah, everybody, it's I, the founding. I, I, I love rock and roll, you know, and I was an Elvis fan, you know. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm pretty basic when it comes to my music, and uh, and uh, but the Beatles were very, very special to me because. Um, just at the times that, you know, we shared the stage with them at the, on the Ed Sullivan Show. Come on. The two things are the Mets and the Beatles playing at Shea Stadium and being on the Ed Sullivan Show. I mean, that's for real. Yeah. That's, <laughs> um, so w- the one thing about Woodstock that, you know, there's been a million festivals now, and now there's an entire industry of festivals. You know, it's from that moment on, it's festivals. Every summer, there's festivals everywhere. Right now, in the spring of 2019, Jazz Fest is going on in New Orleans, which is just the greatest time ever. But for all of the the right wing, the older crowd going like, look at all those bums, all those hippies, the rain, God's bringing the rain to wash them away, to wash that scum off this country. And what happened was it was three days of peace, love, and music. And yeah, was there some LSD and things like that? But the point is half a million kids went, didn't have enough food, didn't have enough toilets, didn't have enough anything. Instead of riots, not one person was killed. And the fields were dirty and muddy, but everybody walked away from a shared experience. And that changed. If you're, if you're dead set against hippies and the Rolling Stones and you hate to be, then it's not going to change your mind. But if you're not sure what it is, to me, the average person could have walked, after reading and hearing about Woodstock, you go, three days of rain and love and nobody was hurt. Well, was go, it, wasn't it billed as an art festival? Yeah. I mean, yeah so. But just think, okay, maybe it's not, I don't get it, but maybe it's not evil. I think that's what Woodstock proved. Maybe I don't get it. I might not like the music, but it's not Satan's work. They're singing about peace and love. Joe Cocker on stage with a rave-up gospel version of the Beatles, I get by with a little help from my friends. You want to define it. You want to define what those three days are. That happens in August. Then, September 26th, as the Beatles have been coming apart at the seams, we get an album of the four of them crossing Abbey Road, and the first song is Come Together. And like, okay. I mean, you want to talk about, boom, and, you know, shooting the bullseye right there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing what that year was. And what Art said before, I can't stress it enough, is that, you know, this the lovable losers, the Mets have always were always the lovable losers, losing, what, 110 games? First year, was uh, the record one, was 40 one, wins and 120 losses. 120, right. I mean, I don't even figure out how, how you can even try to lose 120 games. Right, you games. couldn't if you no, tried. It just, uh, just happens. It was, it was bad baseball at its purest. And you had the greatest ringmaster in the world, the old professor, Casey Stengel, the greatest double-talking comedian 
who ever lived. This Stengel story is absolutely legendary. And Stutzen was the perfect guy to do it, the history of what he had. And, you know, old old players, Gil Hodges actually playing first base, and Don Zimmer from the Dodgers playing third base, and they could barely play anymore. Uh, one story from those days, my favorite of Richie Ashburn, Ashburn and who was it? Uh, Chico, Ilya Chacon. Jewish, yes. <laughs> calling, yo la tengo, yo la tengo, and he doesn't speak any Spanish, and they collide into each other. Uh, yeah, one of the great lines I heard from Casey, and there's a million of them, is there was a catcher by the name of Greg Goosen yeah. who played with us in 68, and Gil was the manager, but he was there as a young kid with, uh, I guess, in uh, when Casey was still there in the 64, 65, and, and Greg was... Uh, this wild guy and, uh, and and Casey was talking about all these young kids coming up with the Mets and he said Ed, Ed Cranepool he's came up as a young kid he's going to have a chance to be a pretty good player and Tug McGraw he's going to be a pretty good pitcher and Ron Sabota he he's going to be okay and Greg Goosen he's 20 years old and uh, in 10 years from now he's got a chance to be 30. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't write this kind of stuff. I no. mean, it just uh, it just uh, it was the Mets and it was. It was beautiful, but it was not good baseball. No. Did you ever hear Casey testifying to Congress, he and Mickey? No, I never heard that testifying. one. Testifying? All right, I'm, I'm going to play that for you guys right now. Here, g- give this listen. This is the old professor, Casey Stengel, testifying. I was asking you, sir, uh, why it is that baseball wants this bill passed. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they'd want it passed is to keep baseball going as the highest, baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. I'm not in here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the hundred years at the present time. Well, Mr. Mantle, do you uh, have any observations with reference to uh, the applicability of the antitrust laws to baseball? Uh, my, my views are just about the same as Casey's. <laughs> Cleaner than any baseball business running the last hundred years at the present time. He had a way of saying stuff. He could double talk as good as anybody, but I don't think I don't even know if he did it on purpose or this was just the way it his came natural, out. His natural ability, but you know he was a good ball player. I think he hit the first home run in Yankee Stadium. Uh, it was an inside-the-park home run in the World Series. Um, I'm somewhere along the line, I, I believe I heard, where he uh, he had hit the her- first uh, home run in World Series at Yankee Stadium. It was inside-the-park home run, but he was a good player. He just had, you know, there's, there's the last guy on earth who could manage in today's world where everything is about stats, and there's two kid, there's a kid named Ethan with an iPad telling you what pitching changes to make. And yeah, he, uh, I don't think he could manage today. I don't think Gil Hodges would want to manage today, because Gil managed by feel. You know, you knew, you knew your players. You didn't, you didn't uh, have the the sabermetrics out there in front of you, and and so Casey was a just a, a character. I can tell you one story though. Please. Uh, 1963, uh, the second year, they're they're still playing as bad as they played in in um, in 1962, but they they were a little bit better. They were a little bit better. But anyway, they they acquired Marv Throneberry, uh, and everybody knows that name from yep. from his days as a Met, uh, marvelous Marv Throneberry from the Baltimore Orioles. And Marv was a pretty good player, um, but somewhere along the line on his trip from Baltimore to get to New York, he forgot how to play baseball. He just forgot. <laughs> Either on a train or on a plane, he just something happened. Something happened to him when when he got when he joined the Mets. So they're playing in this game in the Polo Grounds, and bases are loaded, and 
Thornberry hits a ball into the right center field gap, and all three runs score, and Marvin's up on third base with a triple. And the crowd is, whatever is there, is really going crazy. You know, the Mets would eventually lose the game anyway. But in this particular play, three runs score, and the crowd is going crazy. But uh, they're playing the Cubs, and the, and the great first baseman Ernie Banks calls for the ball um, from the umpire and gets the, gets the ball, throws it to second, and the second base umpire calls Marv Throneberry out at second base for missing the bag. Somehow Marv forgot that you need to run the second to get the third. He just kind of cut across the infield. From first to third. First to third. He forgot. I mean, there's forgetting how to hit a curveball, yeah. and then there's that. Well, there's more to the story. So it changes the whole complex of the game uh, or the complexion of the game. Uh, one run scores, and Marv is out for missing second base, and a whole hullabaloo starts. And in case he's the manager, so he's going to run out and argue with the second base umpire because of this play. And he starts to go out, and the first base coach says, "What are you going, Casey? You know, I forget who the first base coach was at the time for the for the uh, for the Mets." And Casey says, "I'm going out to argue the play." He says, "Well, it's pretty obvious he met missed second base. I don't think you should go out and argue." He says, "I don't care if he was missed it by a foot or not. I'm going to argue the play." First base coach says, "Well, it doesn't make any difference because he missed first too." <laughs> So he forgot to tag first and second on his way to get to third. But that was the, the way of the Mets back in those days. So, uh, so it was what it was. I, I found this. New York Times a couple of weeks ago, did you see it? Did a whole insert about the Mets, about 69? I did. But you and everybody. Yeah. And they touch on this story about Marv Throneberry. Yeah. Here's the part I never knew. The batter after him, Charlie Neal. Do you know this part of it? No, I didn't hear that. Go ahead. After Marv misses first and second, Charlie <laughs> Neal hits a home run, and Casey bolts out of the dugout, runs up to the first base coaching box, and points to each base, screaming, touch first base, <laughs> touch second, that's it, attaboy, now run third. <laughs> so now many, we're in eight-year-old Little League stuff. So many years later, we laugh about this stuff, but it was the way of the Mets, and that's one of the reasons why that 69 team kind of has his legacy, Ken, of, of, of being such a an inspirational, terrific team because of all the things that happened those years earlier from 62 through 68. And they finished last every year except 68 when we finished ninth, a half game out of last place. But that legacy of being inept kind of just passed on and made this team even such a bigger remembrance for people and a legacy that's been passed on from generation to generation. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Here in New York, we knew this story. Around the country, 
All they know of the Mets is the lovable losers who lost 120 games, the guys who kicked the ball around every inning, and, oh, they got some good young pitching, but they just stink. And and that's fine because you don't pay attention to a bad team across the country. Like You just know there's a bad team. Perfect parallel in 2019 is in football, look at the Cleveland Browns, who just absolutely sucked for over a decade. I mean, they've always been the worst team. And by the way, they're the most they're the strongest offense to me that they they are a hotter offense right now on paper than the New England Patriots. They've got every weapon, they've got the hottest quarterback because they finally got together good draft picks and young guys who believe in each other and they just get Odell Beckham who's going to do fine there because he's surrounded by like star players and he doesn't have to try to build a team. Building it, the parallel to the Beatles to me is the Mets failed for 7 years in public. The Beatles got to fail in small clubs and in private. They went to Hamburg to play. They played se- they played six to seven hours a night, seven nights a week, every single day. You play 45 minutes on, 15 minutes off, all night. Who would do that? Because that's it's the only thing that mattered to them. Well, they loved it. You know, they, they loved their music. They loved to play. They loved to entertain. And um, that's why all of us who played professional sports, I mean, we, we you know, not everybody's going to win a World Series or an NFL championship or an NBA championship. You do it. You love the game. You love competing and you love the challenges. I mean, I used to love that seventh, eighth, ninth inning challenge against a pitcher with the game on the line. It, 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 you know, the first inning was great, too, and the second and third. But when you get to the nitty gritty of it, when it's the, the game is on the line, that that one on one confrontation, do you want you want to be up? I do. We're, we're yeah. down one, two outs, yeah. man on second. You want to be up? Well, I felt like in my case, I just I did wasn't going to strike out. I didn't strike out much. So if I put the ball in play, I got a shot. I might not get a base hit every time, but there might be an error. There might be a you know who knows what could happen. But do I love that pl- challenge. Do all the good players feel that way? I think so. I think yeah. you like that 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 moment where it's you against that the guy with the ball, and he's got the ball. He knows what he's going to throw, but but. Uh, it, it, you know, that's what the beauty of baseball, I think, and that's why I love the game so much, that one-on-one confrontation. But but I think getting back to what the Beatles did, they just they love their music, they love entertaining, they love being on stage, and, uh, you know, that's all part of it. And look at their legacy. I mean, it's it's uh, unbelievable, you know. Nobody, nothing can compare to them. No, nothing. truly not. I love the Rolling Stones. Everybody asks me, are you a Stones guy or a Beatles guy? And I say, yes, I don't have to choose. That's yeah. the beauty of music. Yeah. Or books. You get to love all of it. They don't make you pick. Um, talk about how you approach live performing. John Lennon would throw up before almost every performance once they got going, once they had a real audience. Stage fright beyond belief. Terrified. Ter- I mean, even his last performance in New York when he got up at Thanksgiving night at Madison Square Garden with Elton John because he made a bet with Elton. Elton said, whatever gets you through the night is going to be a number one song. And he said, oh, no, son, I'm done with number ones. He goes, that's a number one song. Elton played piano on it. He says, here's the bet. I'll donate any charity if I'm wrong. If that's number one, you've got to come up and play with me in New York Thanksgiving. And the last thing John says before they play the last song, he goes, uh, we're going to do one more number before I get to go off here and be sick. And he's not <laughs> kidding. I mean, I'm on stage, and I'm that terrified. But to his partner... To his the, his writing partner, creative partner, performing partner, everything partner, Paul McCartney. I asked the guys in his band, Brian Ray, all the guys. They're great guys. They've been together longer with Paul than he was in the Beatles. Now, and I say, does it ever 
maybe complacent isn't the right word, but is ever just another show? And he and Brian said, it's impossible for it to be another show when it doesn't matter if we're playing in Sao Paulo to 160,000 people or we're in Des Moines. Before we go on, the boss gets us all together and says, all right, guys, got a big crowd out there. We really got to rock them. I want to get them on their feet on that first song. You can't warm up into it. First note, we got to go. I want to hit them as hard as we can. I want to see him jumping in the back. And by the time he finishes giving you his pep talk, and this is the guy who's been doing it since he's 15. He goes, how can you walk out blasé when he's the guy telling you how important it is? Like this is the only, everybody, he's, Brian said, everybody asks, hey, where's Paul's favorite place to play? He goes, oh, easy. You know where his favorite place to play in the world is? Where we're playing that night. That's right. Yes. Could be a bar in Queens. Could be the state. You know, could be City Field. Fine, it? It's funny, Kenny, because that, that I can relate to that uh, in some small way. I, I think the challenges of a professional athlete, in my case it was baseball, is that you could be in the minor leagues in the, in, and they might have 200 people in the stands. And you can be at uh, City Field, in this case now, in my case it was Shea Stadium, and there'd be 55,000 people in the stands. That moment that your center stage where you're – where you that challenge of you against the pitcher is the same with 100 people or 200 people in the stands yeah. as it is with 55,000. I never knew I never knew when when I was up there trying to hit the ball how many people were in the stands never thought about it it was just that challenge of watching that ball come out of the pitcher's hand and trying to hit it hard somewhere. Do you hear the chants of let's go Mets or the boos when you're on the road? Do you hear that or you, it's almost like once you walk up to the plate you're yeah. yeah, well, at the plate and being in the field are two different things. In the field, you can hear a lot more things and on deck circle. But once you're focused on that, that you against the 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 pitcher, it's it's almost you're just it's a blank. And I'll give you a perfect example of that. As you remember, and still City Field as it is now, you're right near LaGuardia Airport. Right. And the planes are going over, and I see a lot of guys step out of the batter's box. I see pitchers step off the pitcher's mound. I see outfielders looking up in the sky. And I can honestly tell you that whenever I was at Shea Stadium batting, I never once ever stepped out of the batter's box because a plane was going over. I didn't even know they were going over. That doesn't mean I was going to get a hit or hit the ball hard every time, but I, I've, I've, at some point in my life I figured that if I don't give myself – the chance in one to four times a night batting or three or whatever it might be that, that I'm going to be overmatched. And I always felt that if I was focused watching that ball come out of the pitcher's hand, I had a better shot of that millimeter of a second being more prepared than not. You know, then maybe he was. Yeah, and yeah. then he was. And so I, 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 I always use that as an example because if you're not focused, and I can just, when you're talking about the Beatles, that, that, that rush that you get, that high that you get, that they're on stage, and I don't think they, they if we met at Shea Stadium or, or, or some place in Des Moines, Iowa, like you mentioned, it, I think it's, it's still the fact that they're performing and want to do the best they can. It, when you see them walk out onto the stage at Shea, it was set up at second base, and you see them looking around and taking it all in, and they are gobsmacked. They are, that moment, they are completely overwhelmed. And they're looking around at the stadium because Vox made them 50-watt amps and said, that should do it. Like, <laughs> yeah, that should do it. And the, 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 all the vocals were going through the PA speaker in center field. Ladies and gentlemen, now batting number 24, Art Chamsky. That's <laughs> going to go against 50,000 screaming people. No, they didn't have a chance. It, when John Lennon says, can you hear me? 
<laughs> no, and they couldn't hear themselves. They didn't have monitors on stage. Yeah. That hadn't been invented yet. And I asked each, you know, I asked Paul, I asked Ringo, could you hear yourself sing? Nope. Could you hear any other instrument on stage? Nope. I said to Ringo, how could you play the drums behind them if you couldn't hear anything? And here, this is amazing to me. You want to talk about, you know, you t the, this book, After the Miracle, The Lasting Brotherhood of the 69 Mets, the only way it works is by being together with these guys for so long, playing for so many shows overnight after night. And Ringo said, and it sounds funny, but he said, I knew where we were in the song just by watching their body language and watching their asses wiggling. Uh, that's amazing. He said, I, 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 would, I would keep, I just knew from how they turned their heads where we were and played. And when you listen back to it, they're not out of, they're, some of the instruments are out of tune because you can't hear that you're out of tune. You can't hear what you're playing, but they're not out of time with the songs that they're playing. And can you imagine being in a room, by, it, basically it's being in a room by yourself, watching a guy with no sound on playing and you can play to him. I, I find that amazing. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm so envious of having that kind of talent. I mean, uh, as I, I said earlier, you know, guys that I've met, uh, people in the arts and famous people, they always said to me, you know, oh, God, I wish I could hit a baseball. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I wish I could play the guitar like that. Just once. I'd just like to play the piano or the guitar or one of the horns or whatever it might be. But uh, the drums, I mean, I'm, I'm always amazed. They, they, they were The Beatles were so great. And and be able to do the things that they did, and and, and in some ways, it's it's a little bit like uh, the Mets in a, in, a, in a case with when they played all these small towns when they were just starting out. Yeah, and 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 nobody really knew them. It's like us, or the Mets in the early years, being so bad, and then appreciating all the things that happened to us in '69. And maybe in some small way, there's some kind of relationship with how how great they were in those years because um, of all the things they went through to get to that point. And and to this day, I mean, are, are they any less popular today than they were in 1969? No, no. Probably about 30 to 40 percent of my audience is under the age of 25 on Breakfast of the Beatles. How do you explain that? Uh, why why does a kid like you had said? There's a wonderful moment in the book after the miracle. Uh, that Ron Swoboda said, uh, you know, a, a kid comes up to me and says, my dad says you changed your, you changed his life. And Ronnie's words, so he said, he's looking at this old fat guy <laughs> sitting there who played baseball once a million years ago going, how did that happen? But it did. <laughs> it did. But it did. Yeah. You know, it, no offense to the pop music of today and they make a lot of money and the kids are gorgeous and that's what it's supposed to be. But 50 years from now, it's in conceivable to me that there's music being made here that changed the world that will last 50 years from now that in 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 2079 we'll be listening to any pop music of the day because the Beatles changed so much they went from the greatest pop group in the world I want to hold your hand she loves you you know the great pop hits to quickly and immediately playing tomorrow never knows to singing about love she said, she said, and to say, to sing for a pop song, turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. This is not dying. And suddenly these cute, lovable mop tops are quoting the Tibetan book of the dead. <laughs> and let me take you down strawberry fields, you know, and, and Lucy in the sky with diamonds and the whole world is going psychedelic. You want to talk about splitting the difference. And one of the things, the biggest parallel to me between the 69 Mets 
the Moonwalk, Woodstock, and the Beatles, is that it brought people together that couldn't converse. All right, when I tell you how many emails, and I mean hundreds, told me, Ken, play this one for my old man. Play She's Leaving Home. My old man's been gone 30 years ago. He was a Marine vet. I'm a long-haired hippie protesting the war. He uh, he looks at me in disgust. And when I tell you, not one, but hundreds. We we can't talk. There's no, If we open our mouths, it's going to be a fight. And our mom would say, his wife go, we're not talking about anything in this house but food. <laughs> you know, and they would say to me, the only two things we could do together that didn't start a fight was watching the Mets or listening to the Beatles. He always called it long-haired hippie music. And he heard, she's leaving home in 1967. And my dad would say to me, that's a beautiful song. Or let it be. Or one of the one of Paul's ballads or something that he would do. Say, that's a beautiful song. We could talk about music and we could talk about baseball. And they're very in a world that's coming apart at the seams like we have right here, to have a bridge of something where somebody who completely disagrees politically with their child or with their brother or with a close friend, but it's here's something we can talk about. If we just keep it talking about Tom Seaver and is he going to get a no-hitter, that you can talk about. And I think that's why 50 years later, this is on the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, We're I appreciate still talking. that. Thank you so no, much. No, but it Ken. was. You're part of something so much bigger than a baseball team. Yeah. You know it. And, and and to be part of that era. You know, I, what's interesting, I get many people coming up to me and saying, don't you wish you were playing now and making all the money they're making? And my first reaction is, of course, I wish I was playing now. But the reality of it is uh, the, the two things that, that, that I, I think about is that I wouldn't trade it for this World Series ring that I, I'm one of 31 that's able to, to wear it. And and uh, you know we've lost ten guys from that team, but but still their memory kind of lasts forever because they were part of that '69 team. And the second thing is, I got a chance to play, and you're you're a, a baseball buff, and you know this. I got a chance to play with and against some of the greatest players ever to play in the game from that mid '60s to early '70s. So those two things kind of keep me going. And 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 the fact is that that even though uh, you know I would love to be out there right now, and the fact is I'm not going to do it, and I understand that, but. Uh, I was part of a fantastic team in an era that that uh, that had so many great things and so many bad things, but so many great things. And the Beatles, of course, are, uh, I, I enjoy so much talking about them because they were such a big part of my life. And to be part of that Met team that was round at the same time and and shared the stadium and shared the stage at on the Ed Sullivan Show. I mean, what's better than that? No, it's it's absolutely special when the Mets win October sixteenth. That World Series, for anybody who's a baseball fan, there's so many things that happen in that World Series. When we talk about the Miracle Mets, Ron Swoboda making the catch, maybe just one of the greatest catches in the history of the game of baseball. And With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You don't talk about him as, well, he is the, you know, the eternal gold glover out there. Um... The, you, know, the, the, you know, one of the greatest hitters up there with Ted Williams, who when Carlton strikes out 
nine, what, nine, 17 guys, 19 Mets. 19. 19, 19 Mets and loses the game. Because, four to two. Four to two because in between his two strikeouts, Ron Swoboda hit two two-run home runs off one of the greatest pitchers in baseball. Time after time, the I, I still remember I was <laughs> I was dating a, a, a girl years ago and they were replaying the 69 World Series and she said uh, – it was they were it was like in the winter it was like December or something. She said they're playing baseball now. I said no, it's the '69 World Series. I'm watching it, she said, "All right, um, I, what am I watching for?" And I said, uh, "The ball's about to hit Cleon Jones on the foot, and there's going to be an argument about whether it it hit him or not. And the ball's going to come out, and there's shoe polish on the ball, and there was a debate about whether the ball was doctored or not." And she said, "You know, literally exactly everything that's going to happen." I said, yeah, it's like your favorite movie that you're watching. And she said, I'm going to bed. <laughs> because, but that's what – you know, I still get nervous. When I still watch 10th inning, two men on, and, the, and I know what, I know Swoboda's going to make the catch, I still feel nervous about it like I did when I was 11. Well, you like, know, what he, if he misses he, it this time? He, his great line now is, uh, some people had a career, I had a catch. <laughs> That's what he tells people when uh, Ronnie was terrific. We shared right field that year. And, uh, and, and that was new to baseball. Yeah, platoons. he platooned in, Gil platooned in four positions and sometimes five behind the plate. And nobody liked it. It was not good for your career. It was uh, not good. To, I had a great playoffs against the Braves, and don't start the first game of the World Series, which was, which was a little frustrating. But uh, you know, I was pulling for Ronnie, and uh, he had a good World Series, so it was working. Gil had that ability to to get. Uh, he was a manager for feel, as I mentioned before, and he got everybody involved in the game. That was one of his great attributes as a manager. But, but uh, yeah, it was it was that kind of year where everybody uh, collectively contributed to the success of that team. And I think that really is kind of nice when people talk about the team. You don't just talk about Seaver. You don't talk about Kuzman or Jones or Agee. It's also about Al Weiss, and it's about Kenny Boswell and Bud Harrelson and the, the glider, Ed Charles, Ed Charles, and Wayne Garrett and Jerry Grody. I mean, I can go down with all the names and – Glendennan and you stayed and friends. Through we stayed friends. Years. And that was, uh, as I mentioned before, we lost 10 members of that team, including all but one coach. And and, and players just died too young, um, like Tug McGraw and Don yeah. Glendennan and Cal Coons and Don Cardwell. And, and, and it's just uh, heartbreaking that yeah. Tom Seaver is battling yeah. Alzheimer's now. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, you know, it, the book itself is, is about camaraderie and relationships and Just to let you know that art took a group of Mets out to the vineyards, out to see Tom Seaver, because yeah. he had been battling issues post with the Lyme disease right. from Connecticut. And the pictures and the stories, it really is the lasting brotherhood of the 69 Mets. It's just heart and soul in this book, After the Miracle, that you can get on Amazon or at uh, from Barnes & Noble. You have to go find this book. Who's going to read it? Who's going to do the audio book? Well, I've already done the first chapter. Did you chapter. record it? Yeah, I already did the first chapter, and... Uh, and I would have liked to have done the whole book, but uh, they just wanted me to do the first chapter, and uh, that was a lot of fun. So you can get it on audio, and I'm sure it'll be coming out in, uh, in um, soft cover pretty soon. But uh, it's been a great thrill for me. And the other thing I wanted to mention about the book, Ken, it's, 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 it's about this friendship we had and how it developed over the years, but, but also it's about aging. It's it's not about you know there's so many been books been written about that team probably over forty or fifty books about that team and about the Met organization but we wanted to do something uh, a little bit different Eric Sherman co-wrote with me and we wanted to write about some 
more human interest things like the fans could be on a fly on the wall listening to these conversations. That's why we took the trip out to see Seaver two years ago. And, and, and it's really about uh, friendship and, like I said, aging. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's a fact of life. We all age, and, but we all remain friends. And that year really kind of made us a, a stronger bond between the teams and between the players on that team. And, and I think, uh, you know, uh, I think, who knows, 25 years from now, maybe we'll be celebrating a 75th. But, uh, um, he was hoping. He was hoping. But I, I'll tell you one thing, the Beatles will be celebrating the 75th for sure. Oh, And the 100th. And the 100th. <laughs> so, yeah. People say, no what happens when Paul... No, it, the music continues. The music lives on. When that 14-year-old girl says, can you play this George Harrison song? He is so sexy. Not was, <laughs> is, because he's alive because yeah. of the music. Um, Ringo was an only child. And it's a quote from Ringo who said, I was in other bands, but when I joined the, when I joined the Beatles, that's the first time I had three brothers. Yeah. And everybody tells the story. The late Jeff Emmerich, the engineer, may rest in peace, wrote a book. That's my Beatles book is Jeff's book about it. Like you, to me, this after the miracles is the book about the 69 Mets. And he said, you could talk to John, you could talk to Paul, you could talk to any one of them. Or if some two people had an idea, he said, Sometimes they would just clump and the four of them would discuss something. And he said it was like a, a supernatural thing. When the four of them were together, nobody else was in the room. You couldn't get their attention. You couldn't say anything. And you learn quickly. If John said, come here, if he said, or if somebody said, come here, and that just meant the other three guys, there's nobody else. They would just talk quietly. You didn't pay attention. And when whoever announced this is what we're going to do, that was what they were going to do. And he said, that's how that was. Individually, they're amazing musicians. When the fork were, had a prior, I mean, even playing. And that's what you said. Like, there's a connection that goes so deep. Um, what's missing, now, you know, with computers now making the music, and nothing can be out of time. Nothing's out of tune, out of time. The computer's put in the strings and all that. But when you're playing live, somebody had posted, you know, I really listen to the Beatles things. It's sloppy. I mean, you hear things drop or you hear somebody hit a wrong note. Like, no, no, it's not sloppy. It's live. That's what the magic is. They're not trying for perfection. It's the feel. Dave Davies sat right here where you are from the Kinks and said, sometimes he goes, that record speeds up. He said, I know. They said, why? He says, because we felt like speeding up. <laughs> you know, it's there's no, it's not wrong. So, you know, the drummer started playing faster, so I started playing faster, so we sang faster. Because why? Because it just felt like it at 4:15 on that day. That's how it felt, and we listened back and went, yeah. No, they were brilliant in the sense that they were, they would just adjust, they would just do whatever they wanted to do, and, and that it turned out, and doing, it turned out to be fantastic. Yeah, it comes from playing live. That band of brothers. Like you said, uh, how many Vietnam vets, you and I do so many benefits and things. They were in hell. And why are they so tight? And I never forget it because you're doing it together. Exactly. From being in a band or a baseball team or through hell, firefighters, first responders, policemen, there's a rhythm. The joke, the thing about in this book, After the Miracle, there are jokes, you guys riding each other, Jerry Kuzman saying, like, uh, what was the line he said to, was it? Ed Charles or something, look alive. Be, you have to be ready. You have to watch tomorrow because of the platoon. <laughs> no, no, that was Tug. Oh, that, Tug? Was, that, that was Tug saying, uh, get your rest tonight. Cause, uh, or some, no, I think it was Kuzman saying, asking um, um, Gentry or one of the pitchers, McAndrew, if, uh, are you pitching, uh, pitching tomorrow? And they said, yeah. And he went over to Tug and said, Tug, get your rest tonight. You'll be in in the few innings. <laughs> 
No, nobody else can make those jokes. No, no. You know, that that's just them. Somebody told me a story out to dinner in Spain or something with, with Ringo and, and his wife and Barbara, and it was John and Yoko back then in the 70s. And the bill comes, and Ringo says, I've got this one, and John pretends to pass out. And John falls on the ground as if he's out cold. Okay, John, all right. He gets up, and Ringo's looking at the bill, looking at the bill, and he's looking at it, and he's got the pen in his hand. He's trying to figure out the tip, and we're just waiting. And John leans over to Ringo and says, R-I-C-H-A-R, like he didn't know how to spell his name, Richard. And he said, could you imagine any other person on earth saying that to Ringo and it being okay. You know, it's the only person who can make that joke yeah. is that guy you have lived with. The difference between, a final thing, with baseball team, Band of Brothers, you're traveling together, you're playing ball together, you're going out to eat together, you're on the plane together. When people say, why did the Beatles break up after such a short time, only seven years of recording? Well, they'd been together pretty much since 58, 12 years, but every minute of every day, traveling, recording, playing. Tra- and what people have said to me, every band turn, goes at each other's throats because you don't have a break. People who you work together all day, but then you go home to your wife or you go home to your family or your friends, whatever it is. But you have a home life and a work life. And sometimes they intermingle, but there's work and home and there's friends and there's a weekend. When you're in a band, there's no weekend. There's months that you're off, hopefully, but if you're the Beatles, if you're in that place, it's all you do is work. When Randy Bachman was here in the 70s and talked about when taking care of business was number one, he did 330 shows that year. 330 shows out of 365 days. And they said, oh, that's amazing. He goes, yeah, it cost you your family and your wife, yeah. but we may. But he, and I, he said, not that I'm a bad guy. It's just it's impossible. You just don't exist. You can send money home. You can call. Yeah. But you just there's no, you're not seeing your kid's basketball game. You're not helping out with the thing. You, just, you can't do it. And, yeah. and it's not because you're a lazy bastard. You just can't do it. How much of a strain is it truly on a home life being a ball player if you're married, if you have a family? It is difficult. And you got, sometimes you bring home those 0 for 4s or those bad yeah. pitching performances. And it's very difficult on a family. And uh, the ones that survive uh, have been able to tolerate some of those good days and bad days. And that relates to uh, to why you become friends with your teammates. You're on the road with them, like you mentioned. You're on traveling with them. You you you, you share those 0 for 4s. You share those good days and bad days. And the worst part is if you're not playing and in that situation, you, you, you have all this frustration. But you get to know your teammates very well, and, and that's why when you lose like Mets did all those years and then you win it all in one year and bring it and do a complete 360, um, it's, so, it's so much better. That's why it's such a beautiful thing because the, uh, the memories of the, of the bad years are there too, but that made the good years so much, much better. Right. It makes it that much sweeter of what it is. I th- always thought about that with the Beatles playing in Hamburg for no money, living in the room in a strip club, in a porno theater, showering in the urinals, oh, literally washing up in the urinals. That's what they did as teenagers. You know, and George being kicked out in Germany because he was only 16. And, you know, you don't know up from down, and that's what they're doing. So you're playing seven hours a day. And one of the greatest gifts that they had from that is the, the German mob club owner in Hamburg. They're just standing there playing. And he yells at them, Mach show, Mach show. 
Make a show. You're just standing there. So they started jumping around and moving. And th nobody had ever done that really before. You know, the band stood there and sang, and the lead singer would right. sing and swing a little bit. And they were just going nuts and playing and shaking their heads. As he said, we came back to Liverpool. We were the greatest band that ever lived. No, because nobody, you either survive that or you go, hey, I'm going home. Forget this. And, you know, you go through all the minor leagues and the bus rides and the crappy facilities and the crappy food and the crappy everything. And if you make it through that gauntlet and you're still talented and you have to be at the best, look what you can get you know, to. You know, it's interesting you talk about that because that, to me, just sounds like the, the, the Beatles played in the minor leagues. Absolutely. They played the minor leagues and went to the big leagues and they became the biggest stars in the big leagues. They became the, the ultimate stars in music. And and so I can relate to that. And, and uh, again, that's why that, that that period of time, that particular year, is so important to me and so important to all of us who were around in 69 and part of that team because those were great, great years for many things, not so great years for other things. But music, you can't deny the fact that, uh, and the Beatles in particular, you can't deny the fact that they were the greatest. That's all I can say. They were the greatest. 50 years ago, like now, the country being pulled apart in two different directions. The Moonwalk, Woodstock, Abbey Road is released, and the underdog New York Mets win the World Series. Art Shamsky, author of this brilliant book, After the Miracle, not just the great baseball stories in there are, the lasting brotherhood of the 69 Mets. There's just such heart and soul in this. New York Times bestseller list. How about that? Not a whole lot of baseball books get on the New York Times ah, bestseller thanks, list. Thanks, Ken. It's a, I appreciate it. It's it was beautifully a, done. You and Eric Sherman uh, did a beautiful job Thanks. On this. I appreciate it. All right. Amazon and Barnes & Noble and look for art doing book signings. And with the 50th anniversary coming up at uh, City Field, that's going to be special. In June, the last weekend in June, having the guys together would be great. And uh, looking forward to that and, um, and seeing you out there. Oh, I wouldn't miss it for the world. I can hear Bob Murphy and Lindsey Nelson and Ralph Kiner looking down. That was the sound of growing up as a kid. Great Welcome to a beautiful day at Shea Stadium. Great Bob memories. Murphy with Lindsey Nelson and Ralph Kiner. And on the mound for the New York Mets, the wonderful Tom Seaver. He's got his work cut out for him as he's facing the awfully tough Bob Gibson. That sound, that rhythm, that cadence, I still hear it in my head. That's great memories. I uh I miss it, but uh, I still have it in my mind. So, uh, and you know, again, everybody talks about that year. So for me, it's not doesn't feel like it's been fifty years because I hear it every day. The music, the movies, the books that came out in nineteen sixty nine reverberate in this country and around the world to this day. And the miracles that happened that year, from the moon landing to Woodstock to the upstart Mets winning the World Series, so much a part of our memories and keep being talked about again and again. Art Shamsky, great book, After the Miracle. Find it online, artshamsky.com. And we need it now just as much as we needed it then. Peace and love. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.